the practice we are engaged in is called insight meditation. We might sometimes wonder what is it that we are seeking to have insight into and what's the point of having insight in the first place? What's that all about? And essentially what the uh, Dharma teachings point to or (coughs) recognize is that we don't necessarily see the way things are. And that when we don't see the way things are, we live our lives in a way that's out of harmony, (coughs) in conflict with the truth of experience. And so that there's a process in which suffering arises through blindness, through not seeing clearly and truly. And so in seeking understanding, in seeking insight or wisdom, we're seeking that seeing or that recognition of the way things are that allows us to align the way we live our life with the truth of how life is. And in that alignment, the aspect or the element of experience which we call suffering, that sense of struggle, of dissatisfaction, of frustration, of separation, all of that can be transformed. And this transformation is the invitation of practice. (coughs) The reduction and ultimately the cessation of suffering. And this is the mark of insight, of wisdom, that it brings this about. When we live our lives, we tend to move rather quickly and form a perspective of what's going on that we don't always question. And one of the things we have the opportunity to do here is to move more slowly and to look more carefully in order to see whether our perspectives and perceptions are accurate and in accord with life. A number of years ago I was uh, sitting in meditation early in the morning in February and it was cold morning. And having finished my period of practice, I opened my eyes and looked out the window that was in front of me, some, I don't know, three or four meters ahead of me, three or four yards. And on the windowsill, there was this little snail. And my first thought was, how did that get here? And then I realized... Oh, the window's open. That's how it got in. And why is the window open on this really cold night? It was actually because the paint had been peeling and it absorbed all this water and swollen up. So it couldn't close. So I'd had to take a plane and trim, shave it down to size and then repaint it because the paint was still wet. I couldn't close the window. It would stick, so it was open. And all that just kind of flickered through my mind in a moment. So I thought, oh, that's how the snail got in. And I thought, why did it come in? And I thought, well, I guess it's cold out there. Probably snails don't live in winter normally, you know. You don't see many in February. 
So probably it's come in because it's freezing out there and it's needing shelter. But then I thought, there's nothing for it to eat in here. It's going to starve to death. It's escaped from the cold and only to die of hunger. And I was sort of looking at this little snail and watching his little, his little beady eyes on stalks, you know, and his sort of glistening translucent body and that spiral shell with the delicate markings. And I was like, I was just really, you know, in the openness of the meditation, just really, oh, the snail. And then sort of, oh no, what a dilemma. You know, outside it freezes, in here it starves. What can I do, I thought. What can I do? And I thought, I know. Solution. I'll take it and put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. <laughs> Plenty of food. Quite warm. <coughs> Guess I better not tell my neighbor. But I felt really happy and resolved, this particular dilemma. And so I got up from my cushion and reached out to the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> from when I planed the window. And there was a moment where the, this living, breathing creature dissolved into something quite different. And it was quite impactful as a moment of experience. It was like, huh? Like I was feeling for its life, worried for its problems, actually found a solution to them. And it never existed. It never for a moment existed in the form that I imagined it to. Of course, the wood chip existed all the way through, but it wasn't having any problems. It was just doing its thing, being a shaving of wood. And we can see in this illustration, and I'm sure you've got many instances of your own experience, we, one sees how quickly we jump to conclusions because we haven't really examined what we're looking at, what we're in contact with, whether it's something outside us or something within. But we very quickly assume we know what it is and start creating a story about it and responding to the story with happiness or sadness or solutions or lack of solutions and yet we don't always quite get it right. So part of what happens in a retreat is we slow down, we start to look. We have the opportunity to see more clearly, directly and precisely what is actually going on. And one of the things we can begin to see and understand is the ways in which we misperceive our experience. We misconstrue or misconceive what's actually going on and the suffering that ensues from that. And the Buddha spoke very frequently and with great uh, enthusiasm, I guess one would say, about three areas in which we regularly misperceive the experience or what's happening. And in not understanding what is happening, what is true, we tend to grasp on to experience and as a result of that grasping, suffering arises. The Buddha recognized this relationship between grasping 
or resisting experience, which is the same thing really, just in its alternate form, trying to take hold of or push away experience, is being at the root of suffering. And why do we do this? Because we don't really understand the way things are. So what are these three major perceptions or misperceptions that the Buddha spoke of? He said the first thing that we do, and we all do it, is we tend to see that which is changing and impermanent as somehow unchanging or fixed or permanent. And there's so many ways in which we do this. Like if we're sitting in meditation and we're kind of feeling like, this is boring? How can we conceive this is boring except that we've assumed that we're going to be alive in the next moment? Because if we weren't sure that we'd be alive in the next moment, this moment would not be boring. Be assured. Anyone who's had their head underwater for longer than they wished knows very well that the breath is not boring. If you're not sure when the next one's coming, it gets really interesting. But so easily we operate on the basis that it's just going to happen. And we're projecting in our minds a continuity and a future that is not guaranteed. So much of the struggle, and I think we've spoken about this with our experience, when it's difficult is because we've imagined that it will continue into the future or we're afraid of its continuation in the future and we struggle with that rather than the experience that's here. It's this illusion of continuity that creates the struggle. And the experience itself isn't that bad. But the projection into the future that scares us. Or in terms of wanting to keep something and maintain an experience, again, the attempt to hold on to something is based on the, the fantasy that something could persist or continue or be sustained. Because any experience changes. Every experience changes. When we see this, it really doesn't make sense to resist the difficult because it's going to change by itself. It doesn't make sense to try and grab hold of the pleasurable or the flattering because it's going to slip through our fingers like water. So why do that with it? <coughs> and how does this happen that we somehow don't see that things are changing? How do we fool ourselves in that way? It's essentially because we're not present most of the time. We relate to fixed images of the past and the future. And we could maybe usefully illustrate this by imagining if you're driving in a car on a long road, on a long straight, and if you're looking straight out the front windscreen at the far horizon, what do you see? Well, whatever it is. It's not changing very much. If you're looking way out down there, way down at the end of the straight, there's nothing much happening. It's pretty much the same. And if you look in your rear vision mirror, or over your shoulder, as long as you're not driving, look for a while out the back window, what, what do you see on a long straight? Nothing's really changing, just a fixed picture, the image. But then, if you look out the side window, straight down as close as you can to the ground, what do you see? Again, not when you're driving. 
But if you look for a few moments, you'll see it's going past so quickly. It's changing so fast, you can't even see it. It's a blur. It's moving that quickly. And that's the present moment. That's where you are. At the point where you are, it's moving that quickly, you can't see it. In a car travelling at 50 or 60 miles an hour on the motorway, or much less than that even. Looking to the future, it's a fixed image. Looking to the past, it's a fixed image. So long as we live in those realms, things seem fixed and permanent. As soon as we come into the present, and many of you have reported this, when we're in the present moment, when we actually see what's happening in the present moment, it's moving really quickly. And we have to slow down and make things really simple, which is part of what we do here, in order to have half a chance of seeing just a quarter of what's going past. And we're moving slow. But there's so much going on. We start to see that. We start to see that change touches everything when we look. When we look at the present moment, it's constantly dissolving into the next moment, into the next thing. And to really get a sense of what that is for us, what does that mean for our life? In one of the uh, Mahayana teachings, the teachings of the sort of, we could say, the later northern school of Buddhism, uh, there's a uh, a wonderful stanza in the Diamond Sutra that uh, speaks to this. It says, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. And that cascade of images of things that appear and disappear just, for me, evokes the sense of the transiency of the, the flickering nature of experience which we can see, which we can feel when we really allow ourselves to. And seeing that fluidity, like why try and grasp it or why resist it? It would make no more sense than trying to grasp a river or resist and stop a river. It wouldn't make sense when we see that. Quite naturally we begin to let go of our grasping and our resistance and allow things to move as they are and as they do. And that doesn't mean, and it's important that we understand this, it doesn't mean that we don't allow ourselves to be touched by life because it's flickering or moving. It's not like we back off from it and say, "Mm, there's nothing in there for me. I won't have anything to do with that, thank you. It's not about that at all. That's not what non-grasping means. It's more like allowing ourselves to come really close, to be touched by, to touch but not to take hold of, not to try and grasp or get entangled with, but just touch. And William Blake understood this when he wrote, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Sometimes people can say it so sweetly. When we bind ourselves to something joyful or lovely, it kind of it's like that very binding and taking hold of it, it destroys the winged life, the, the movement, the aliveness of it is lost because of our attempting to bind ourselves to it.
And even if we can, it doesn't have the life that we were attracted to in it anymore. And yet, he, she, who kisses the joy as it flies, to be able to touch that sweet thing or that beautiful moment as, or that some, something that moves us or touches us, a moment of sweet delight in the heart or the, just the vision of a, a dewdrop on a leaf. And to really just touch that, really receive it, not try and hold it, but in that, as Blake suggests, to engage in that way is to live in what he calls eternity's sunrise like the, the dawn of the timeless <coughs> is revealed in that ability to touch and to not bind. So learning to let go, learning to let be. This is the message of seeing the truth of change, seeing that all things change. Our bodies, hearts, minds, lives, worlds, relationships, jobs, roles, functions, clothes, they will change. Not to mention our feelings and our images of ourself and the things that seem most close to us. They change too. I think you've probably noticed that over these days. So the second particular misperception the Buddha spoke about a lot was he said we tend to see things as being capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. Experiences and objects as being capable of giving us lasting (coughs) satisfaction when they're not capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. We assume things to be satisfying when in fact they're not in that way. He spoke about this characteristic of the inability of things, of experiences, because of the very fact that they're changing. We can't get lasting satisfaction from them. Even if it's something beautiful, the most lovely, sweet-tasting food, it doesn't give us lasting satisfaction if we keep eating it. In fact, if you ever started with a really nice piece of chocolate and then another one and another one, trying to get satisfaction from that sweet flavour, some point it becomes horrible, sticky and bleh. Or it runs out before we get to that point. And either way, it's not satisfactory. It doesn't make us happy in the end. And yet there's this idea, and it's so deeply rooted, that something out there is going to do it for me. <coughs> something either, when I get it, the perfect partner, Or the perfect body. Or the perfect meditation. Let's get spiritual. Then I'm going to be happy. But it doesn't exist that way. No one's reported having found that thing and you know, coming to an end of the process. Or we think it'll come, satisfaction will come from the getting rid of something. And sometimes there's something we'd really like to be gone from our life. And we struggle with it and maybe eventually we, we give up struggling. And sometime, yeah, maybe 
because of our struggle, struggle, maybe in spite of it, it changes. And we might think, oh, great. Huh. But is this permanent bliss that we thought it was going to be when that experience disappeared? When that annoying voice in our mind stopped going, me, 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 we think, if only my mind would shut up. Oh, me, 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 me. No, 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 no. Oh, you know, God, if it just would shut up, then I'd be peaceful. And then, of course, at some point it runs out of steam and it shuts up and we're sitting there going, it's boring, nothing happening. It's not the satisfaction we thought we were going to get. And this goes on and on again for us in our lives, doesn't it? We set something up as the thing that if I get it or if I can keep it, then I can somehow rest and ah, I'll be happy forever. Or if I get rid of it or if I can keep it away, if it's something difficult or scary or painful, then things will be fine. But it never happens. It never happens like that. So one of my favourite teaching stories is a story of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, uh, a Sufi teaching figure and both a, uh, a wise man and a fool, it would seem. Although one might suspect that his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day Nasruddin was uh, found by some of his friends at the corner of the village market on market day with a large pile of red-hot chilies in front of him, picking them up and eating them. And his face was bright red. He was sweating profusely. His nose was running. His eyes were streaming. He looked in quite a great degree of distress. And he was eating one at a time these big red, well actually they're quite small, red hot chilies. Big pile, small chilies. And the friend came up to him and said, she said, Muller, Muller, very respectfully, what are you doing? And he picks up a chili and eats it, and his whole body shudders with the shock of the heat and the burning, and he's ah. he looks at her and he says, ah, I'm eating these chilies. She's, she says, Mola, Mola, I know you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? He smiled and he said, I'm hoping to find a sweet one. Do we recognize ourselves in that? Because it's good to take it with a sense of humor that, yeah, we do this, don't we? And it's like we somehow imagine, despite the fact that all the experiences I've had in my life have not produced that effect, that somewhere just around the corner and hopefully not too far away is the one that is going to do it. But it's not in their nature to give us that any more than it's in the nature of a chili to be sweet not that there's anything wrong with the chilies they make great dal or curries and there's something about a certain maturing in us when we stop seeking for that from experience The Buddha said once that fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. That so long as we're chasing after it, trying to get something from it, we live the life of what the Buddha called fools. 
not in a critical or sort of nasty way, but just it doesn't work, does it? Isn't there something foolish about working your way through a large pile of chilies looking for a sweet one? After a little while, we can, you know, the first few, no, of course, that's not foolish, that's just learning. We all need to learn. The only way you learn is with experience. Was it? What's that um, great uh, Zen story about the, uh, the, the very dedicated student comes to the master and says, What's the most important thing? Good judgment, said the master. How do you get good judgment? How do you learn? How do you develop this quality, said the student. Zen master says, hmm, Experience. The student says, oh, Experience? How do you get experience? How do you get experience? Hmm. Bad judgment. <laughs> That's how it works, isn't it? The question is how many times we need to eat the jelly before we get the message. Sometimes quite a few, it seems. And there's a certain, we could say, blindness, I think is a preferable word to foolishness because it's not judgmental. It's blindness. It's a condition of we can't see in. And yet wisdom is not the seeking to get satisfaction from the experience, but to get wisdom and understanding through the experience. And that's, I I think it's very interesting, that it's wisdom that seeks wisdom, seeking to understand. It's already wisdom. It doesn't have to already understand the experience to be wisdom. It's the seeking to understand it. To make that the priority is the mark of wisdom. And that sort of maturing in which we begin to let go of the the hope. And in some ways it's a bit like projecting perfect parents onto an experience that somehow something is going to take care of me and do it all right so I'm going to feel great forever and ever and ever and ever. And it doesn't happen. It just doesn't. Dante, in the Inferno, he, he wrote, or he described, you know, the, the flaming sort of a realm as having a door at least in one of the descriptions or parts of it it's having a door which says above it I think the translation goes abandon hope all you who enter here and it's interesting abandon hope it sounds like that might mean it's going to be pretty bad you know might as well get used to it and maybe that's what he meant, but it could also mean that what he's pointing to, and what I think he perhaps is pointing to there, is that there's something about going into the challenge, and you know, we could say hell, we could say dealing with difficult or challenging experience, we could say being alive, to be honest, and it's the same thing. That the abandoning of hope is not letting go of aspiration and vision and sense of possibility, but it's more like letting go of that fantasy that somehow experience will do it for me. Because that's actually hell. And rather than being some kind of cruel joke or cruel sort of rubbing it into people, you know, abandon hope, you're in hell, it's actually the solution. It's actually what you need to understand in that condition. 
And again, it's not a surrender or it's not a collapsing or a loss of aspiration, that surrender or that abandoning of hope. It's abandoning of the false hope. The false hope that the chili's going to be sweet. That one needs to abandon. And in that then, again, we stop giving so much authority to it. We stop making so much importance out of what is happening, out of the experience. Because what we see is we can't control the experience. It's unsatisfactory. It's unable to satisfy us because it's changing and it's not in our control. It doesn't do what we want. Who of us here decided in the morning to wake up and feel grumpy? Or have their minds spinning around some story that we should have, we think, been finished with 20 years ago? And it's still going, who decided that? We didn't, do we think that's a great day for dwelling? I think I'm going to space out. Yeah. Well, maybe you did, but if so, you probably weren't listening to the instructions. But mostly we don't decide that, and it happens anyway. It's kind of embarrassing, actually, isn't it? Kind of humbling. See, hmm, my mind doesn't do what I tell it to. Hmm. What does that mean? My mind doesn't do what I tell it to. And if my mind doesn't do what I tell it to, this thing that seems so close and so intimately should be at least that I can control because clearly everything else further distant, like this body which is slowly aging and all these other people around me in this world, well, I haven't got much hope of getting them to line up the way I want them, have I? I can't even get this to. I mean, have you ever tried to get one other person to do it? To be just the way you want them to? Good luck. <laughs> and, you know, if we're going to have a relationship with anyone, whatever kind of relationship, one thing we need to understand is they're not going to be the way we want them to. And that includes the relationship with ourselves. actually. We're not always going to be the way we would like ourselves to be. But this really comes to the third area of misperception that the Buddha spoke of. It's really very much at the heart of Dharma teachings. And this is the way in which we perceive or imagine ourselves, others, and experiences, in fact, to be somehow self-existent, independent, isolated entities or events. That somehow we imagine that there's a, a separate particularity that has a kernel to it of something that's solid and fixed and unchanging and that we refer to as me or you. And that in that, we relate in a way to life and ourselves or what we conceive of as ourselves in such a way as to, again, cause suffering or to experience suffering. And the Buddha said, you know, there's this misperception we see as having an independent self-existent, that self-existence, that which does not have as an independent self-existence. Now, this is not suggesting that it doesn't exist, or that you or I don't exist, or have existence, but that it's not independent. It's not apart from the shaping of all the conditions around us that bring us into being. And that there is isn't anything within it that is fixed or permanent or solid. That what is unfolding is a process that has its unique character and quality 
attributes for sure, but that it's not solid. And that ultimately there is no owner of it apart from the unfolding experience itself. There is no sort of me to whom this body belongs. And most of us would be pretty clear about that, wouldn't we? We wouldn't say, no, I'm this body. No one thinks that. Well, not too much, if they've reflected at all. I'm this body, no, because it doesn't feel like I sort of diminish myself by cutting my fingernails, you know, which I would have to assume would be the case if this was my body, if I was really this body, if it was really me. But what is the sense we have of self, of me, of I? What is this that we assume, that we impute, that we relate to and relate (coughs) from so much of the time without perhaps having really questioned what's going on, without perhaps having really looked to see and to experience directly what the truth of the actuality is. So if we come from a place of more openness or interest or curiosity, that putting down of our assumption that we know in order to look, what do we see? This body, this mind, thoughts, feelings, sounds, smells, taste, touch, sensations, images. This experience arises through the sensory equipment that we've been sort of given it seems and we, we, cr- we have the sense of the world that arises in relationship or through that contact that the sense doors or the sense organs reveal and it's, it's known, it's cognized it's revealed we could say, there's this awareness this presence that seems to recognize or to organize or to somehow make sense of it to get it we could say there's this process going on but these experiences if we look this you know thoughts feelings emotions states of mind feeling sensations in our body sounds images tastes smells these very stuff of our life it seems they're changing, they're changing, they're changing, they're changing, they're changing. And there isn't something we can point to in all of that that's apart from that process of changing. There isn't something we can take hold of and say, this is me, that's the bit, that's the one, that's me, that's at the centre of it, and stable, and regular, and reliable. It's just moving, and it's changing by itself. It's just flowing on. It keeps rippling from like this into like that. In the morning I'm happy, at lunchtime I'm bored, by the evening I'm excited, and end of the day I'm whatever. And maybe actually you go through all of that in five minutes. Day after day after day after day after day. And not in our control, as I said. Otherwise, wouldn't we have all decided already, well, I'll just have a pleasant, blissful experience for the rest of my life. If we could do that, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't? I mean, the only reason one wouldn't is one would have decided that something else was actually going to be nicer. But still one could just make it happen. We can't do that. It's not in our control. And we have this whole sense of a, of a like a, 
being embedded in this vast sort of flow of past and future that gives us a sense of solidity or substantiality. But I think I spoke about this the other night. Like, So where is the past? Where is it? Where is the body you had when you were 10 years old? Anyone got any idea? You know, it doesn't exist. Where is the body you will have if you are alive in 10 years from now? Where is it? Pretty much all the cells in this body will have gone. Hopefully a few of the neurons, the brain cells, will have stayed, if we're lucky. But pretty much everything else will have been died off and something else come to replace it. This will not be the same body in 10 years. To see how it changes. And the mind? How many thoughts have you had in your life? How many? You got any idea? Do numbers get that big? You know? You might think the scientists are challenged to count the stars in the universe or the atoms in the universe, but the number of thoughts one human being has in their lifetime? Oh, it's an impressive number with lots of zeros on it, I expect. And yet, where are they? Where are they? Where are all the thoughts you're going to have? You know, they're going to come pouring into your mind. Maybe they're doing so right now, thinking, what's he talking about? But look, where are they coming in from and where are they going? You're just like, it's like, you know, there's this motorway. All these thoughts pouring through. But it's like the cars just appear and disappear before they pass through this particular point on the road. And they're gone. What is it to really look and contemplate look at and contemplate that reality, that experience? The Buddha invited us to to reflect in this way. He said, Looking at your experience, do you see in what you experience in your body, in your mind, do you see anything that is not changing? The nuns and the monks would say, no, no, we see things that they're changing. Clearly they're changing. Do you see anything that can that you can control, that you can really make it be the way you want all the time? No, no, we can't. Do you see anything that you could get lasting satisfaction from thereby, or therefore? Well, no, clearly not. It's changing and it's out of control. It's not in our control. And so he said, does it make sense then to take this to be who you are? That which is changing, uncontrollable, and incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. Does it make sense to identify this as who or what you truly are? And this is an important question. We're asked to examine this for ourselves, not just to take on some position of sort of Buddhist philosophy that says, something about whether we do or don't have a self. Because one can kind of get into this whole thing. Well, so, so Buddhism says there's no self. Well, I guess I haven't got a self then. Without really having figured out you know, where the self I had before is gone or who it is that doesn't have the self in the first place. It's not about creating a position or taking a philosophical standpoint. It's about questioning the assumption in our experience that we maybe haven't questioned. And seeing, what is the sense of me 
that everything seems to turn around. You know, it's like the sense of me that seems to be at the centre of it all. That seems to everything seems to be configured by. Have you noticed how much of your thinking is about yourself? It's a little bit embarrassing, I know. You know, we'd like to think we weren't so self-centred, but you know, particularly if we're supposed to be doing Buddhist meditation, especially if we've been doing it for years, as some of us have, and still, unfortunately, embarrassingly, a lot of our thinking tends to be about ourself or about what other people think about ourselves. Have you noticed that one? How? much time we spend thinking about what other people think about me. There's two things I'd like to say on that. They're both quotes. And I don't remember who made the original statements, but I like them. So, The first one was, what other people think about you is none of your business. And it's really true. It's their business. It's their problem. What other people think about you is none of your business. And the second one, the second uh, other sweet piece of wisdom on this topic that I encountered some time ago was uh, we would spend, what was that? No, you would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people think of you if you realised how little time they spend doing it. Huh? We somehow think everyone's thinking about us, except mostly we're thinking about ourselves, and so are they, about themselves. And yet somehow all this thinking and all this energy and all this pain gets generated around this thinking about me, thinking about me. And yet we haven't really looked and said, well, what is it that that's all about? Who or what is that? (coughs) So we see there's these ideas and beliefs about who I am. There's these conceptions and images. We can talk about certain, you know, roles that we've fulfilled in relationship to other people as a as a as a child, as a parent, as a sibling, as an employee, employer, teacher, student, all these different things. Friend, not friend all these different roles we've inhabited. We can think about all the, the history of experience. This happened, that happened, then there was this, then there was that. This is It's sort of like part of this picture. We can add to it you know, the things we prefer, what we like, what we don't like. The habits, the, thing, the ways we tend to behave, the particular qualities we've cultivated. And we get kind of like a, a sort of an image or a picture that we say, yep, that's me, that's who I am. And yet... Although there's a certain truth in it because it does refer to something we can recognize, the assumption that within that there's something that's solid and fixed and independent from or separate and apart from everything else going on around us that keeps influencing how that unfolds, that is the cause of the deepest suffering and the deepest confusion. We have this idea of who I am, who I was, who I will be. Again, that sense of identity based in time, based in a journey that seems to have a solidity and a continuity to it. (coughs) But what happens when we, we live this way? We're kind of lost in our minds, spinning. We know how painful that is. 
And part of what the mind spins with is the sense of, this is me. One of the thoughts that keeps coming in to reinforce, it's me. I'm like this. That's how I am. That's who I am. That's what I am. That storyline or that theme keeps coming into the thinking process, creating an image. And a lot of the struggle with our thought is because we'd really like to form an image that we like, or that's flattering or positive or delightful or spiritual, or at least somebody else is going to appreciate, we hope. We'd like to form a positive image about me based on all of this, but we can't because it's a mess. Or we're forming a negative image of ourselves, and yet we resist it because it doesn't feel true. And it isn't. The negative images we form are not true either. Because they're images, they're snapshots, attempts to somehow solidify something that is not solid and cannot be made so. And in it, this thought that keeps saying, yeah, it's me, I did that, I made it happen, it's like this because of me. Yeah, referencing back. It's a little bit like in a circus, as if we would go to a circus show and there would be some performance, like maybe some magnificent acrobats doing these incredibly sort of remarkable things with their bodies and flying through the air and all sorts of stuff. And then afterwards, this clown would walk out into the sort of stage with big floppy shoes and a nose and sort of, sort of go, yeah, it was me, you know, I was on the trapeze, yeah, it was me, you know, wasn't I great? And that's kind of like how the ego turns up, isn't it? So it says, that happened, you know. So there was this moment of, ah, real sweetness in the meditation. Then, hmm, hey, I've done it. God, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, let's go and do it again. And then it can't do it again, can it? It can't do it again any more than the, client, the clown could climb up on the trapeze and do a double back flip somersault. Because it didn't do it in the first place. And if we saw that going on in the circus, we'd think, well, oh, that's part of the act. That clown is one of the acts. That clown isn't the trapeze artist or the um, sword swallower or the, the weightlifter or whoever other characters there were. That's one of the acts. But it's the act that thinks somehow that it's at the centre of the acts. And it's not. It's just another one of the acts. Look and see for yourself in your mind. The thought that says this is me is just another thing that happens. The thought that says I did that is just something that happens after something else happened. Isn't it? Really, that's what happens. And we've all seen it. We all know that oh so well. And if we live believing the thought the ownership, the claim that that pattern of thinking makes, we feel compelled to have to act on every fear to avoid it. Because it's mine and it's me. And I've got to do something about it. <coughs> and we feel compelled to act on every needy, grasping movement of desire that comes saying, I've got to have it, it's me, I need to get that thing. Because we haven't seen that actually somehow it's not quite like that. And when we don't identify with the experience, when we can see it happening, when we can allow it to move through the spaciousness of mind without claiming it or owning it, it doesn't actually have any power to cause us suffering. It doesn't have any power to limit, to define or to bind our life. Wei Wu Wei, the... Uh, modern Chinese mystic, he said, when asked, why do we suffer? He said, why do you suffer? 
you suffer because 99.9% of what you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. And that, again, is not to say, is not to negate one's existence in some kind of absolute sense, but to see that the way we're conceiving what this thing we call self is, is not accurate. And it's not accurate in two particular ways. It's not accurate in the way, in the sense of us imagining it to be fixed or solid. Like there's someone in here called Yanai. And in there, that certain thing with that little nugget with the label on that says Yanai and knows how to spell it, is me. But there's nothing in there. You can look for your whole life. You will not find something in there like that that is fixed or solid or unchanging. And the reason for that is the other thing that we make a mistake about, or we, the way we misconceive what it means to be an individual, because we are individuals. This is my body in one sense, that's true, and that is yours or yours. And if we get that confused, and you know, I don't remember that actually I should be putting sandwiches in this mouth and start trying to put them in someone else's, clearly that's not going to bring the end of suffering. And yet, the reason there's no nugget or kernel in here that's fixed and unchanging that I can refer to as me is because this life is constantly impinging, touching and being touched by everything else in it. And therefore it's being formed and reformed. It's being folded and moulded and changed and co-created by everything, in fact. It's not independent or separate. And that's the key piece. When we conceive of self as separated, apart from, removed, discrete, disconnected, then it generates suffering. When we understand it to be embedded, engaged, connected, part of, in relationship to, co-arising with anything and everything, ultimately, then we start to become aligned with what is true. So can we rest in seeing? And I don't mean just visually seeing, but the simple awareness of experience unfolding, of sights, sounds, breaths, sensations, thoughts, feelings, even the thought that says, it's me. It's just another thought. Just see the thoughts in the end are just like bubbles, insubstantial. Just bloop, and they're gone. Unless we grab them, because we like them. Or grab them, because we don't like them. But it's the grabbing that makes them solid. It's not in the thought. And if we can just start to see them and let them move, Allow them to flow. Not have to locate ourself as this is me, these thoughts are me, these thoughts are mine. They're not someone else's and maybe we do need to take responsibility for them because they can cause suffering. But thoughts in themselves aren't bad things, as I think we've said. You know, in fact, as one Tibetan master said, wisdom is just a wandering thought. 
thoughts can express wisdom and compassion. Equally, they can express blindness, grasping, and negativity. So just starting to see them for what they are, thoughts. And starting to see this experience for what it is. Life. It's alive. That's what it is. It's, it's moving. It's flowing. It's passing through, it seems. Passing through. We could say pouring through. Life pours through this moment. Unstoppably. Unstoppably moving like a river. We could say. And there's the sense of trying to locate ourselves somewhere in it by either saying, this is me, or, and equally problematically, by saying, it's not me, no, that's not nothing, nothing to do with me, sorry. Emptiness, you know, non-self and all that, nothing to do with me, this body, mind, thoughts, all those things I did, that was just empty conditions. That is a misunderstanding of the Dharma. It's not about creating another position in opposition to the sense of I am this by saying I am not because that's still locating a sense of self but just simply defining it in the negative rather than the positive it's the very process of that attempt to locate and define that we need to locate and define a sense of centrality that we need to attend to that we need to understand because in the truth of life that locatedness that fixedness doesn't exist and the attempt to find it and create it is ultimately the root of the suffering we experience and the releasing of that compulsion and that need to do so is the the revelation of the freedom we seek it doesn't create freedom it's already there so long as we're looking for something else through trying to fix an identity through our experience solidify something we can hold on to to make ourselves feel safe then freedom slips through our fingers so can we abide in our experience feeling free to use the language of mine or yours and yet knowing that that doesn't cut any hard, fast lines between us. Just as the air that I'm breathing now is the air that some of you have been breathing out. And the air that you're breathing in, yes, I'm afraid so, is the air that some of us, your neighbours, have been breathing out. And in so many more subtle ways than that, too, we co-arise as life. So to not assume we know what we are, who we are, how we are, even that we are, but to leave that question open and just look and see. So what's here when we don't place that image or that frame around life? When we don't try and frame it, put ourselves in a box and everything else in another box, we leave the boxes out. What is there? We don't create the boundaries that self implies. A place where we draw a line between this and everything else. Self and other. When we don't draw that line, what is left? Because there are no lines. 
There are no boundaries except that we create with our minds. And when we don't need to do that anymore because we're willing to rest in the unfabricated, undivided naturalness of life. Life is unboundaried, is unbound, is vast and yet just this. Vast and yet just this. And for all its movement and flow, it's equally still. And somehow the stillness and the movement coexist, not apart from each other, not in each other's way. And this practice invites us, Dharma teachings invite us to truly and deeply understand, to realize and to recognize the unbound nature of things. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, come to see through and beyond the surface appearances. May we come to understand the nature of things and to realize the truth that is unbound and unbounded. for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.